Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This episode of the Good Line Podcast is the second in a series we are currently doing on the topic of postmodernism. The goal of episode one was to help us define and recognize what we mean when we use the phrase postmodernism. So if you haven't listened to that episode, we highly recommend you go back and listen to it before you start this one. It's not that we don't think you can handle it or anything. It's just that this topic means a lot of things to a lot of people. So we want to make sure that we all come at it with the same background. You're listening to The Good Lion Podcast. So this is episode two in our postmodernism series, which episode one was all about trying to define loosely. It's kind of hard to define postmodernism. That's a lot of what we talked about. If you want to go back and listen to that episode, go for it. If it's been a while since you've listened to that episode, we're going to take about five minutes just to do our best to try to recap what exactly do we mean when we say postmodernism. And Aaron, it kind of feels like no one totally knows. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it can be a little bit confusing. And one thing we talked about is the people who think in postmodern philosophical terms aren't necessarily going around calling themselves card-carrying postmodernists. So mm-hmm. it's kind of nebulous and it's kind of like this... It's like this mist that you're trying to grab at, but it's a mist, so it's just disappearing through your fingers at times. But I feel like we got a good handle on it. I feel like at the end of the episode, the thing I came away with the most was postmodernism seems to be this rejection of the idea of absolute truths and also a rejection of old systems like religious systems and societal structures that were holding people back from the progress they wanted to make. So this fusion of modernism, but then taking it even further. Yeah, I think that that's a really helpful way to think about it. It seems like any system that was asking people to conform to a certain way of being postmodernism rather than saying, okay, this system gives me three options. I need to pick which one is best for me. Postmodernism says, I don't want any of your options. I don't want to be bound by the selections that you give me. I want to be free to make my own choice. I want to be free to be really true to who I feel I am as an individual. Hmm. So Brian, just because I am somebody who really thrives on tangible examples of things. Can you just really quick throw out, give us like a really simple example of somebody using postmodern philosophy? Yeah. You can apply it to any situation you can think of, but just some sort of situation to get us in that headspace. Yeah. One example that's really stuck with me was the episode that we did with Ryan Lynn on the abortion topic. He was talking about how there are people who are personally pro-life where these are people who genuinely believe that an unborn child is a human being who is worthy of dignity and honor and that abortion is the ending of a human life and is therefore not justified. However, they also believe it's not their place to put that belief on anyone else. So I think one way about what's happening in that situation But if you think a different way, I'm not allowed to tell you that you're wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think to take it even one step further, I remember reading a comic strip by a a Christian artist, and he was illustrating how some people view kind of the abortion debate, and it's sort of, again, more postmodern philosophy, where it's this idea of like, well, some people say it's a real human, some people say it's not, and instead of like saying, I need to find out what I actually believe, is it a human or is it not? The idea is just, eh, who can really know what's true? And so he illustrated it by having two people in a car driving and the driver is coming up to what looks like a person in the middle of the road. And his friend says, stop, that's a person in the middle of the road. And he goes, you know, I can't really tell if it's a person, you know, at the speed I'm going with the lighting, it's just not totally clear. And the friend's like, but if you're not sure, maybe you should stop the car and see. And he's like, I don't know, I'm just going to keep driving. And then he runs over the person. And to me, I think that that's a clear example of the dangers of postmodern philosophy. When when we want to just look at any situation and say, eh, what is truth? Who is to know? Who can be sure? It causes us to not make choices about situations that demand that we do make choices. Yeah, I like that illustration a lot because the part that really resonates for me in terms of getting to the core of both postmodern thinking and the dangers of it, it's not I think that might be a person in the road. I'm going to stop and examine and figure it out. Or this is difficult to figure out what's true here. I'm going to stop and examine things and make sure I arrive at the correct conclusion. It's this is difficult to know. So I'm just going to keep going ahead with what I think right now. You know, and, and I think that's really a big part of it that it's it's not we have a bunch of confusing topics in our culture we need to be really careful and deliberate and arrive at the right conclusions about them it's guys all these things are really tough like we don't really know what we should be relying on or whatever so everybody just do you you know just do you do what you want to do don't get in too many other people's way and as long as you do that if everyone is allowed to be true to themselves we'll all be okay i guess that i think mm is kind of the core of postmodernism. So in the last episode, we covered the history of postmodernism, and we talked a lot about modernism and how it led to postmodernism. So with all that background, why exactly do Christians need to think through this? Yeah, I don't think that you're going to have many conversations where you're going to look at someone and say, we should trace our thinking back to the Industrial Revolution. (laughs) Like, it's not that the history is there so that we can just know the history. For me, there's two big reasons why this is worth talking about. The first is that postmodern thinking is all around us and is even inside the church much more than we think it is. And the second is that postmodern thinking has some very dangerous implications that if we're not looking for, we're going to miss those dangers. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So let's break that down one at a time. How is postmodern thinking all around us? Sure. So think about this. How many times have you heard people talk about doing something because it makes them happy or doing something because they want to be true to themselves. That is all around us. That's 
That's like the air that we breathe. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like I feel like every kids movie is based on these ideas. Do what makes you happy and be true to yourself. I literally uh, just saw uh, a Netflix movie come out that was aimed at kids, and it's pretty much those exact things. Like, uh, push against anybody who is keeping you down. Do what makes you happy and be true to yourself. And so these are ideas I feel like in society, they seem pretty positive. Like, don't let anyone hold you back. Don't let anyone define who you are. You define who you are. These things on the surface seem to be good things. Yeah, and these are things that routinely I wind up saying myself. Like, I right, right. I very often will use the phrase, hey, you do you. Yeah, you've said that to me. <laughs> You've said that to me so many times, dude. You do you, boo, right? That's I never say boo. No, I I'm want sure that to have. be very clear. I'm sure you have. That I never, <laughs> ever add boo to the end of it. <laughs> that is not a thing that happens. I know this is not the point of the episode, but it just became the point for me. That is not a thing I do. <laughs> Wait, what was what was the thing that you said? We were talking about my, my wife is having a kid soon, and we were... <laughs> We were talking about something like, oh, I mentioned that on my, on my, on the sonogram, the baby mm -hmm. has arms, visible arms. And you were like, you go, baby, have those arms. I stand by that a hundred percent. I'm glad that you want my kid to have arms. Thanks, man. You're welcome. I mean, I don't know how much me wanting that is going to impact the arms that your child has, but if it, if it is up to me, then I vote arms. Well, it's, it's like the old saying goes, every time someone wishes a baby to have arms, a baby does have those arms. That saying is much more catchy in the original German. <laughs> it's also true. It's true. Yeah, so every time this kind of talk comes up, and by this I mean the be true to yourself and not the baby having arms talk, <laughs> every time this kind of conversation comes up, it's coming to us with postmodern roots. Instead of there being a trust that there's some kind of system that I should be following, or there's some kind of objective that I should be moving towards, they're trusting instead that if I just remain true to myself, if I just do what I feel at my core level, then and only then can I find real lasting happiness. Okay, yeah, I, I have seen that all over the place. That is a huge thing in social media right now, this idea of just be true to yourself and nothing else matters. Don't let anyone define you. You get to be the master of your own definition and destiny. So that that's a huge thing right now in culture. And I see where you're going with it. But isn't there some merit to following something of your own path? Like modernism seems to chart out one way forward. And that was clearly never going to work for everyone. Yeah, I completely agree with that. The argument that I want to make today is not postmodernism is wrong, let's all go back to modernism. Modernism mm. fails us in a ton of ways, mm. but we seem to know that really clearly. Like we're very aware of the dangers of when we push everybody towards the same system, we wind mm. up hurting a lot of people. Like we wind up putting a lot of square pegs in round holes and, you know, vice versa. Totally. Like one example that I would give for that is if you've grown up in one church your whole life and you've only heard theological Christian perspectives from one way, if you start to discover 
that maybe something that you learned was inaccurate or, or not totally biblical. If you feel like you have to be forced into just one way and you can't open yourselves up to the broader body of Christ and realizing that there's a lot of different theological perspectives within Christian orthodoxy, that can be really discouraging. But once you open yourselves up a little bit to a little bit more of that broader learning, that can be a really good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's where we're very aware, I think, culturally of the dangers of modernism. If we're very narrow in our viewpoint, you know, we get why that's dangerous. We get how mm. that leads to short-sightedness and a lack of inclusion and all kinds of different bad outcomes. Mm. What we don't seem to understand as well as a culture is that though modernism fails us, postmodernism also fails us in a whole mm. different way. It's not the path forward that many people make it out to be. Mm. That's a really, really good point. I, I think I agree there. And with particularly the younger generation, it feels like the only path to satisfaction is giving yourself completely over to being true to yourself. Like I'm trying to think of an example from social media that I've seen. Oh, this is a big one. So right now I feel like we're seeing this resurgence of sort of this, this, this form of feminism that says basically do whatever you want to do with your body. So it's this message to both young women and young men to basically like, Hey, if you want to sexualize yourself, do that. If somebody else does it to you, that that's wrong. That's bad. But if you want to put yourself out there as a sex object, hey, that's that's you. You do it. And so that, that to me, that's a really concrete example that we're seeing. We have a, a culture, a whole generation of young people through. I mean, I don't want to sound like the, you know, the 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 uh, stodgy old guy right now who's criticizing the youth. It's coming for me out of a place of love and care. But you know, we're seeing Snapchat and TikTok and Instagram, and particularly, you know kids looking at celebrities as the model and example forward, it's this, I, this mantra, be true to yourself, is causing an entire generation to basically sexualize themselves, thinking that it's empowerment when really it's actually enslaving yourself as a sex object. Yeah, it's kind of like the thinking is, if I feel that I want to have a certain sexual identity or sexual persona, the path to freedom is embracing that entirely. Hmm. And this, I think, kind of points out one of the great problems with postmodern thinking. Humans are very emotional beings, but we like to think of ourselves as really rational beings. I think that's pretty true. Do, do you mean that people are just driven by emotion? Yeah, way more than we actually think we are. So there's this really great book called The Righteous Mind, and it's written by a secular author named Jonathan Haidt. And he uses this illustration that our minds are like a little rider riding this giant elephant. That sounds like he had a crazy dream one night after eating some old pizza. That's probably how he arrived at this picture. Not going to lie to you. <laughs> but as he describes it, the giant elephant is this deep emotional us. It's the stuff we feel before we ever even have a chance to think. Like, you know when people say your gut reaction? Mm, yeah. This idea is kind of playing on that. It, it's the gut you. And mm. the rider is our rational minds. Now, when you hear that setup, you often would assume this means the rider, the rational mind, that's the person in control. That's the thing that's exercising authority 
over that deep emotional gut you, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The rider is the one in control. And while the rider might be small and the elephant's pretty big, the, the rider is still the one in authority there. So that's the way that most of us think of ourselves. And what this book kind of proposes is that it's actually the other way around. The rider is really the servant of the elephant. So the emotional gut us, it knows what it wants and it is going to get what it wants. And the rider's job isn't to keep the elephant in line. It's actually to lead the elephant towards more of what it wants. I, I guess that makes sense in the sense of like an elephant is a very large, powerful creature. So even if you, the rider, is trying to control it, at the end of the day, if that elephant wants to go left and you want to go right, there's not much you can do. Exactly. You're kind of along for the ride. And that's mm. what he's trying to say. Our rational minds, while we think that they are leading us to a true version of us, what they're actually doing is helping us be driven by the deep core gut us. Like, have you ever been in an argument where you didn't know why you felt the other person was wrong, but you weren't willing to tell them that they were right. I think you just uh, summed up most of married arguments for people, right? <laughs> That's a very good point. That's most <laughs> of the way that it goes. You, There's this deep you that disagrees for a reason that you might not want to say. Right. And so you have this struggle of the deep inner you is like, but hold on. We know that other person isn't right. Like, we know that they're doing this thing that annoys us. And the rational mind, the rider, so to speak, kind of has to walk the balance of like, okay, there's a limit to like what I'm willing to give you or what you should say right now. But I can't just rationally convince myself to no longer be frustrated in the situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's, it's super relatable because this has been a huge struggle for me because I am somebody who both, you know, we talked about the Enneagram. I'm an Enneagram too, I'm a helper giver. I, I hate when people say facts don't care about your feelings, but I also hate when people completely ignore facts so I'm always trying to strike that balance in myself where I am trying to be a rational, critical thinker while not completely abandoning the emotion of a situation. But I have to admit there's been times where I've been in an argument with my wife or somebody and I, I think I'm being rational. And then I'm realizing later on, once I've stepped away from the argument to kind of ponder it a bit, I'm like, oh, man, some of that was pure emotion. Yeah, and, and that's the biggest thing. To to be human is often to be a contradiction. It's mm. to feel something that rationally you don't believe to be true, but you also can't just ignore what you feel. We often believe we are much more rational than we actually are. And it's mm. all about trying to find that balance between being completely emotion-driven and being exclusively rationally driven. But the way that yeah. that often works out is the rider doesn't have an argument with the elephant and say like, hey, here's actually what needs to happen. The baseline way of how most of us are wired is that we're driven by a deeper emotional gut level us. And then we ask the rational us, go find the facts that support what we feel. Mm. 
Yeah, that's 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 so crazy, but it makes so much sense of what we see people doing today. Like think about so often in culture, people arrive to the table of conversation already knowing what they believe and they're not willing to hear what anyone else has to say. They've already arrived at their conclusions and then they've embraced those conclusions at an emotional level where it's like these conclusions are a part of my identity. Like maybe the conclusions at one point were based on information, but now they've been absorbed into how somebody views themselves. And so when they reach that table of conversation, they only listen to the facts that support their conclusions and nothing else. And if they're if they are approached with information that somehow conflicts what they believe, because that is such a part of their core identity, they react at the emotional level where they lash out saying, how dare you bring up this alternative viewpoint? Don't you know what's true? This is actually something that in this book, The Righteous Mind, he actually highlights we could actually become addicted to this Mm. version of going about things. So he set up this experiment where he would take people that would kind of give a political affiliation. They'd identify as either Republican or Democrat, and then they'd Mm. bring them in. And if they were Republican, they would show them a fake news article about how a Republican leader was involved in some kind of scandal, like a genuinely fake, and they'd bring it up as like, oh, did you hear this thing that happened today? Hmm. And then they would show them a second article that disproved the first one. And they would do Hmm. it in the opposite way for someone who identified as a Democrat. They'd show them a Democrat leader being involved in some kind of scandal, and then they'd show them, oh, actually, here's this other article that disproves that. Right. And they were measuring people's brain waves and measuring what was going on in their minds while this was happening. When they got the second article that showed that the person on their side was actually in the clear or that yeah. their way of thinking was vindicated, right? there was a dopamine hit similar to like working out or taking drugs. <laughs> oh, man, dude, this is so... This is so, so true. Like I, I've seen this. So, you know, for me, I've, we talked about on the show, but you know, I'm, I'm your resident politically homeless guy. Yes. I have more conservative convictions on moral issues, but I just, I don't identify with political parties. I'm not, I'm not playing on either team and I don't, I'm not an apologist for either team. I try to look at the good and the bad and be honest with it. But when I've been in conversations with people, both people who are diehard left-leaning people and diehard right-leaning people, anytime I've brought up any criticism or story of someone on their team doing something wrong, the knee-jerk reaction is to go, well, how can you know that's true? Like, I, that can't be true. Like, I don't think that's true. And then anytime I brought up something that's a criticism of the side they don't like, their instant response was, oh, yeah, that's that's probably definitely true. That's That has to be true. So it, I think it just shows that we are wired this way we we are we we absorb these identities at an emotional level yeah and it becomes just a part of the identity we carry with us like can you even identify the last time you had a conversation about a political or a cultural issue that ended with somebody changing their mind it's been forever since that happened instead what i see is people just kind of look at each other and say uh ah, 
you fell for all that fake news. So sad. And you see both sides saying that. Anytime you have any of this debate, you have people going into an internet argument, they're espousing their beliefs, and you have any, everybody on their side saying, yes, preach it, brother. And then everybody on the other side is just kind of shaking their head going, man, that's so sad. They're so deceived. And both sides are doing that. Absolutely. And this is the real danger of postmodern thinking. When we get to a place where we're not even dealing with the facts that are going on in the real world, we wind up saying, this is my system. I reject anything that might get in the way of it. Because forget your system, this is what's working for me. You can't bring something up to me that gets in the way of the system I like, whichever mm. side it happens to lean on. Yeah, I, I have an illustration of this, actually. So recently I was on Facebook, which is just the ultimate place to have civil discourse. It's the most soothing website you can find. It's the public square of thought exchange of the day. <laughs> so yeah, I was on Facebook and what the issue was isn't important, but I will tell you, I saw some people that I know loosely, some loose acquaintances, and they were having a debate about an issue. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what the issue was. But as they were arguing, one of my friends said something. And then another person who I didn't know was like, show me one example that that's true. I dare you to find one example that that's true. So what I did was I did a quick Google search and I found like 30 examples that that was true. <laughs> and I just interjected in the comments like, hey, here's a list of 30 examples that that's true. And the person's response was, well, you can't believe anything you read on the Internet. And my response was, yeah, but these are actually research things that are backed up by facts. And there's cross references and sources. And his thing was just like, well, no, it can't be can't be. <laughs> and you could have easily looked at him and said, well, I read your opinion on the internet, so I guess I can't trust that either. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah. It, it all came down to this argument, this way of thinking is affirmed by my political side. So I don't care what the research is. I don't care who did it. I don't care what the facts actually are because it's against what I believe. There's no way I could entertain the possibility that it could even be true. Yeah, I know what's right because what's right aligns with what I am likely to believe feels right. Mm. That doesn't get us anywhere. That's a really right. dangerous way of thinking that ruins the way our culture goes about any kind of meaningful conversation and it can also have some really dangerous effects on Christianity. Well, what do you mean by that? So when people lock themselves into their groups, you end up losing the ability to reach people outside of your group. Think about if you're much more left-leaning when it comes to your politics. As you scroll through your newsfeed, when you see something that's much more right-leaning, rather than thinking, that's something I should engage with to figure out the truth value of. You just kind of mm. toss it aside and you say, oh, there's mm. no way that that could be true. Or you try to be the left leaning one to step into a more right leaning conversation and you're pushed aside because, oh, there's no common ground here. Well, right. the real danger is that Christianity can just become another one of these echo chambers if we're not careful. Mm. We can become a group that doesn't listen to anyone outside of us, doesn't listen at all to the rest of the world, 
and just has our own little separate reality that if that's all we live within, it will kill our ability to share Jesus with other people. Yeah. No, absolutely. And this can totally be a problem even within Christianity itself. I mean, I have seen so many crazy, angry, spiteful debates on Facebook that were just between Christians arguing about the nuances of their theology. And often there is no willingness to entertain anybody's perspective if it comes from the opposing side, if it doesn't line up with what your side says. It's like, don't don't even give it the time of day, just completely throw it out. And that I think is a really important distinction. I'm not trying to say that to be good Christians in the world, we need to allow anyone and everyone to tell us what's actually true. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. Mm. But if we wind up saying only people in my little circle can say anything that's true, we'll wind up not engaging with anyone outside of our circle and then ultimately forgetting how to engage with anyone outside of our circle. And if we're called to be ambassadors for Christ, like the Bible says, then part of that is being able to reach beyond our small group. So think about Acts 17 for a second. Paul is in Athens and he's watching people search for truth in a really conflicted city. Right. Yeah. The the saying about Athens at the time was it was easier to find a god than a man. There were idols everywhere. People were worshiping tons of different gods. Yeah. And Paul decides that he's going to meet with the people of Athens in the middle of their searching and present Jesus to them. Mm. So rather than going in and calling out their whole system, he starts by stepping into their system. Right. He uses their statue that was, it was to the unknown God. It was genuinely a, in case we happened to forget a God out there, or if there's some God we've never heard of, we don't want that deity to be mad at us. Paul uses that statue to begin talking with the people of the city about the God of the Bible. And then from there, he grounds God in the real world. He calls God the one who establishes the boundaries of our dwelling throughout history. For Paul, God wasn't one of the options that they could choose. He was the true God. Hmm. Yeah, God wasn't just some idea. He's the foundation of reality. Exactly. And so for Paul, God made this world specifically so that we would seek him. The natural world as it is makes us long for God. Mm. Yeah, I was just actually texting with a friend this morning and we brought up the idea of uh, presuppositional apologetics. Have you ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's this idea of in Christian apologetics, presuppositionalism is this school of Christian apologetics that believes that Christian faith is the only basis for rational thought. So it presupposes that the Bible is divine revelation and then attempts to expose flaws in other worldviews. And I feel like that oftentimes is something we see that's common in apologetics, but I don't necessarily know how effective it is because if you, if, if Paul were to just go into Athens and say, Hey, I'm going to start with just completely tearing down your entire worldview and way of thinking. What I've seen is even though it's good to tear down lies, if you open with that, 
if that's your opening line is just, hey, let me destroy your worldview. Let me demolish you, Ben Shapiro style, right? It puts people on the defensive and they're not often willing to hear what you have to say because they're so busy trying to defend their worldview. But I love the example of Paul that you've just pointed out because he goes into somebody's worldview and he says, hey, let me enter into your system of thinking and then try to show you a pathway, sort of a side door out of your way of thinking and into the correct way of thinking. And it's like, it's like building a bridge. It's, it's a, a bridge between a lie that then eventually leads to truth. Yeah, I think that it's super important to think through not just how can I say what's true, but how can I say it in a way that matters to people? You know, Paul could have gone through the city and he could have gone all your idols are dumb and like he would have been right (laughs) but like would anyone have thought like i should listen to the man calling me dumb like that's not (laughs) that's just not how human nature works yeah i I feel like a lot of times for christians we lean towards more the example of elijah remember on mount carmel when he's dealing with the prophets of baal and he's just completely tearing down their worldview because they're calling for fire and Baal isn't sending down fire because Baal doesn't exist. He can't do that. So Elijah's just like, yeah, I mean, you guys are idiots. Like, oh, is your is your God in the bathroom? Like, what, what's going on? Like, why isn't he here? Oh, it's because he's not real. We can want to take that posture. But it's like, what was Elijah doing in that moment? He was fighting to prove to Israel that God was real. He wasn't trying to save the prophets of Baal. He was actually trying to destroy them. And then later on, he he did destroy them quite literally. But for us as Christians, our role isn't to destroy secularists and their worldview. It's actually to win secularists and, and win them out of their worldview into the Christian faith, into what we believe is true. It's, it's actually motivated by a compassion to reach the world instead of destroy the world. I think that's such a great point. And I, I think living that out appropriately begins with recognizing how scary a position we're actually trying to put postmodern thinkers into. Mm. You know, like postmodernism attempts to break down the systems that let us down. And the, the scary result of that is once you break down all the systems, you wind up with nothing left to stand on. And that mm. can be a really scary place for people. What we're showing them is that their system completely breaks down, that it doesn't make sense to end in a spot where everyone just goes, well, who's actually to say what's right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like I see this in how people handle the news recently. Like we get hit with this huge avalanche just in 2020 and now 2021 whether it's COVID or politics or racial tensions, we get hit with this huge avalanche of information. And so much of that information seems to contradict itself. I mean, even like think about how many times, you know, the CDC has contradicted itself with all of the COVID restrictions. That's a huge point of frustration for everybody. And so I feel like people oftentimes just give up. Either they completely default to one side of politics and say, I'm just going to let this side do my thinking for me. Whatever they say is what I'll do. Or instead of asking, why is so much stuff wrong? We kind of just ask, how can I even know what's right anymore? And I feel like a lot of young people, especially, are in that place right now. I talk to so many young people, no matter what the issue is, The frustration is like I am exposed to so much information coming at me all the time from my parents, from the news, from social media. How can I even know what's right? 
Yeah, that's the real scary ending point. You know, postmodern thinking doesn't leave you with a new framework for thinking about truth. It just leaves you without the very concept of truth. And if truth doesn't really exist, why even bother trying to seek it out to begin with? Just try to be your version of a good person and do what makes you happy and hope that that's enough. Like that's where a lot of people have been left. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes me think about deconstruction, which is something that we talked about on the show. People begin to deconstruct their faith, which can be helpful at times. Like we've talked about before, right? If you've got termites in your house, don't burn the house down, but do take care of the termites. So it's like if, if you've got negative things in your faith, the things that are actually you find out not based on scripture, but based on just your pastor's opinion, right? It can be helpful to deconstruct those things. But what happens is if we've taken on bad things into our faith, it's good to pull those things out. But this really scary moment can happen where you deconstruct everything and you look around and you're left with basically nothing. And this is what we're seeing with so many young people. They had something negative in their faith. They started deconstructing that thing. And it was like you pulled one board out of the wall, but then more and more boards started pulling out. You know, the, you take one card out and then the entire house of cards starts to fall. Yeah, that to me is why this conversation matters so much. People often begin with this modernist idea. I've got this system. It's going to work. It's going to lead me to a good place. And then as time goes on, that system doesn't perfectly do it for you. And it makes you look around and say, maybe all of this needs to go. And when you do that, you wind up thinking, well, what is even left? And we want to talk about this because we want to help people avoid the moment where they're stuck with nothing, feeling like what's even left? You know, Jesus loves to come to people with nothing left and offer them everything. We need to not give up everything and be left with nothing. So here is where I think things can get really complicated, as if they've been super simple up to this point. (laughs) As we talk about postmodernism, and particularly as we bring up the dangers of it, when you see people using postmodern thinking, they probably don't think of it as a really dangerous thing. Mm. They probably see the freedom that it offers. Mm. They see that, oh, someone is feeling oppressed by a system. We can deconstruct that system and then that person isn't oppressed anymore. They're free now. You know, I don't like where our systems are bringing us. I don't like where our modern way of thinking led us to. We can kind of flip everything on its head and we can be free from those issues. Postmodernism for many people is a way out of a dangerous world, not a dangerous world unto itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. It it does make sense. And in my mind, I see a lot of people sort of finding freedom in this way of thinking, because when you grow up as a child, you have so much trust in the adults around you. But then as you start to grow up, you realize like, oh, 
my parents don't have it together and actually they do screw up a lot. Or you look at, you know, your, your teachers and you're like, oh, my teachers didn't actually know what they were talking about completely. Or, you know, oh, the government, like I grew up thinking the government had it together and actually there's a ton of corruption and shady things that have happened. And so I feel like when your whole life you've been hoping certain things were true and then you start to have that house of cards fall down, there can almost be like this nihilistic Mm -hmm. relief that comes from just going, you know what? Who can know if any of the things that I was told was true? Why don't I just try to do, like they say in the book of Judges, what is right in my own eyes and be a good person based on my own merit and not have to rely on any outside sources telling me what to do? I think for a lot of people, they they do find that freedom there. Yeah, this is kind of a a weird example, but there's a fantasy football podcast that I listen to when football season is happening. I know Aaron Mm. is super excited by this. So Um, excited. Where one of the three hosts, whenever he makes bad predictions or whenever he says, like, this team is going to win and then they get smoked or whatever, when they come back to him the next week, he's always like, well, you know, the way that I get through this is I remember that life is ultimately meaningless and we're just clumps of cells on a space rock and one day we'll all return to dust. And it's become like this recurring bit of, of his nihilism that he just keeps returning to the freedom of, I hoped for something. It didn't work out. It's okay. It's not like any of this matters anyway. So like you're saying, there is that initial freedom that we can find in, you know, if I'm not winning the game, I can just declare that the game is not worth winning, you know, something along those lines. I think the problem with that is we like a lot of our ideas in small doses, but if we take them to where they actually lead, then we realize what the problem actually is. So think about if, if there's a bridge that's out, like there's this giant bridge, like think, think like the golden gate bridge. Hmm. If right in the middle of the golden gate bridge, there was just this huge hole, like the bridge collapsed in, but there were still supports standing on either side of the, the river, the, the ocean. What does the Golden Gate Bridge go over? I know water, <laughs> but like, do you know what um, kind of body of water it goes over? I have I, no idea. I don't. <laughs> Please keep all of this in. I don't know what it goes over. <laughs> well, it goes who over who, San Francisco. Who's to say? How can we know any truth if we don't know this? Who's to say? How dare you, Aaron? You're ruining this illustration for me. <laughs> Do you want to rewind it a little bit? No, I'm fine with this. I, I can okay. I can jump off from here if you're willing to let this be a little sillier. Yeah, for sure. Either way, whatever the Golden Gate Bridge happens to go over, if there was still bridge standing, like leading towards the water, and then there was this open chasm in the middle, you could still walk on the first part of the bridge, right? Like Mm. you could begin Mm. to make progress. It can seem like an escape from the land behind you. Right. But the bridge isn't actually leading you anywhere anymore. You know, if there's like a path into the woods and there's like a crazy dude chasing you, (laughs) you don't realize that the path might be super sketchy and crazy dangerous because the first few steps look good. I think that's where a lot of people are at with postmodern thinking like these first few steps felt really good. They felt secure. Mm. They felt safe. They got me away from some stuff that I wanted to get away from, but they're so focused on it got me away from that pain. I feel safe right now. They're not even looking ahead to the fact that the bridge might be out later on. Mm. Yeah. 
That's a good point. That's a really good analogy because I think we want to go for what seems comfortable and what seems safe. And the disillusionment that comes from having your house of cards start to fall can really lead to finding safety in like the in just the emptiness of not knowing of just being like, well, who can actually know what truth is? And I've seen that happen. Like I've seen people completely deconstruct their faith because of this, where because there were a few things that they were told that were true. And then they learned that they're not actually true or it's not certain that they're true. People instead then feel like they look to towards the other path and they're like, okay, this is the clear path now away from this, away from my faith. And this path looks secure. Like in their mind, the, the bridge of their faith is out. It's broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're misdiagnosing it. And so then they look at this other bridge away from it and they think, oh, this is security. But they, they don't actually realize that that leads to emptiness as well. Like an empty pitfall off the bridge basically is what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. To use this segment is just becoming a whole segment of illustrations, but I like it to use a non bridge based analogy. Think about when your stomach hurts, like you've eaten something, you've got some heartburn going on, you reach for some Tums. Tums are amazing. (laughs) Tums save you. Like they make you feel so good on the inside. Like I cannot think of a more effective, like pick it up at CVS kind of medication. Mm. So imagine you get like a stomach ache for the first time. Like it's the first time you've ever had really bad heartburn or indigestion or whatever. And you begin to think like something is wrong with my stomach. Something is broken. Like I need to do something about this. And Hmm. somebody hands you Tums for the first time and you take some of it. And now you feel great and everything is settled. And you just decide everything's good when I eat Tums. I'm never eating anything else again for the rest (laughs) of my life. Like that's kind of what people do in deconstructing their faith. It's they begin to get their first spiritual heartburn. They begin to Mm. get that first sense of spiritual indigestion. Something isn't right here. Something isn't Mm. totally adding up. Something doesn't make perfect sense. Mm. Mm. Postmodernism comes along or deconstruction comes along and can act like Tums for a moment. In a small dose, it's really helpful. Maybe you do need to kind of break down some wrong ideas that you have. Maybe you need to pull away from some of the conclusions you've previously held really tightly and make room for some space. Right. But if all you do then is you say, well, deconstruction helps solve that one problem. This is now the only tool I'm going to use on every problem that comes my way. That becomes a really dangerous road. And that is what I don't think a lot of people see when they engage in deconstruction. Yeah. So here is another silly analogy. This is (laughs) great. Let's just do this for another hour. We're youth pastors. We can pull analogies out of thin air. So imagine that you've been told your whole life that burgers are amazing and you know the recipe for a burger. You're like, okay, there's a bun, there's meat, there's pickles, there's lettuce, there's tomatoes. Like you've got this recipe. And then you go to a restaurant and you start to eat the burger and you real like you realize like the recipe, they got it completely wrong. It was supposed to be lettuce and tomatoes and beef and, and a bun, but they put in cat food and they put in like vegan cheese that nobody wants because it's terrible. I've tried it. It's, it's horrible. I think I'm it's sorry. just called wax. 
<laughs> like vegan cheese just is wax. And so you eat that burger and somebody didn't follow the recipe and your response is to go, burgers are a lie. I can never eat a burger <laughs> again. <laughs> I just the, think the most youth pastor sentence I've ever heard is burgers are a lie as like the conclusion <laughs> of a thing. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying though? It's yeah, like I totally the, get it. It's we a good have analogy. the recipe for Christianity. And it's clear. Jesus lays it out clear. Like, yes, there's things that are debated on, but the core recipe is clear. And then you've got Bob Jones University that like had people like young people attending students attending this Christian college segregated up until the early 2000s, telling couples that they couldn't date interracially. That's not a part of the recipe. You know what I mean? Like, that's not mm-hmm. Christianity. Yeah. There was Christianity, and then someone slipped some racism and segregation into that burger. And and for some people, though, when they experience it, and it makes sense. It makes sense. You were supposed to be given. I'm speaking to those of you guys listening to this who maybe have had bad experiences in the church. You were supposed to be given a really good burger of Christianity. This is so youth pastor. But you were supposed to be given an excellent, juicy, beautiful burger. And somebody in your church, in leadership, screwed up the recipe. That doesn't mean that you should abandon the nourishment, that that food that you were supposed to get. Go out and find it. Go find a place that's serving it according to the recipe, is what I'm trying to say. Don't just abandon food and say, I'm not going to eat anymore. That was beautiful. That was really good. I enjoyed every part of that. Just getting philosophical with burgers. As well, that that is definitely the side podcast we're gonna start, like on Patreon. That'll be for like the really hey, welcome to welcome to burger philosophy with Aaron and Brian. All right, we we talk like this now. You know, I like it's like I don't know if are you Italian? Are you? Uh, I don't really know, but you who's, know, it's like a, to say it's like a classic trolley problem. On one, you got the lever. You go left, you'll run into one burger. You go right, you run into five children. Which is worse? <laughs> Run, running over a burger or running over the children? I don't know. I think I you've know. missed the heart of the trolley problem if that's <laughs> the way that you're setting it up. But I, <laughs> I do want to I do want to keep going with this, which, I mean, I, I want to for I'm a not thousand reasons. Any of this. <laughs> no, use all of it. It's so good. <laughs> okay. thing that I do really like about that analogy is sometimes people are discerning enough in a field to recognize when something is wrong, but they don't know how to make it right. Mm. Like if someone gave me a trash burger because it had really weird seasoning in it, I would know that something was wrong, but I wouldn't necessarily know what was wrong. Yeah, and what if that was your first burger? Like, what if you were told your whole life this is what a burger is supposed to be, and then the first time yeah, you had everyone it, around you is like, no, no, we've been making burgers for years like this. Yeah, and so that's that's the clear analogy in my mind of like the the person who was raised in an abusive church, and yeah. that was their first exposure to Christianity, and it, it's it's tainted their view of it forever. Yeah. And I have so, so much compassion for that person. You absolutely, know I mean? that's that's terrible. Yeah, and it's almost like what that group of people making the messed up burgers needs. Like you're saying, it's not to give up on the concept of eating. You need like a Gordon Ramsay kitchen nightmares moment where like he can come in and he's the discerning one 
who's able to say, I know how burgers are supposed to work. I know right. how this recipe is supposed to go. This Let me show you. It's frozen. We we used to watch Kitchen Nightmares, and my wife and I just were always like, at some point, he's going to point out, he's going to go into the freezer and point out how the meat is frozen. Fresh frozen? There's no such thing. See, the fresh or it's frozen. I understand. What's this in water? It's a salmon chef. Frozen? Yeah. It was a fresh frozen. That's lazy. Everything's frozen. Trout stuffing. So we take it out. Cold. 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 Yeah, slow thaw. Everything's frozen. It is true. And what my wife and I would always wait for is we just wanted him to call something absolutely dreadful. Wow, it is absolutely gross. It looks like a can of dog food. Dry and tasteless. It's like it's been left out for days and it's been attacked by cats. Never change, Gordon. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing because you create great analogies. So all of these analogies are simply to say that when it comes to showing people the dangers of postmodern thinking, it is a really uphill battle. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if I can for a minute, I can just be honest with my own struggle with this, if that's okay. Yeah. So here's an example I would give, because I just want to show that any one of us can fall into this or or be tempted to fall into this. So for me, like I am a pastor. I was raised in a church. I've studied theology and scripture my entire life, and I still feel like I'm barely scratching the surface, which is why I love this podcast, because it gives me a place to process through ideas. But I remember a few years ago, I was studying... I'm not sure what chapter it is in John. It might be John 25, but it was the story of the woman caught in adultery. And I stumbled across in my research a bunch of stuff that basically pointed to like, yeah, there's a good chance that this story actually was never originally included in the original manuscripts of the New Testament. Have you heard of this? Yeah, that's the beginning section of John chapter 8. Okay, John chapter 8. Yeah, so that blew my mind. Like when I read that and when I started to research that, like to think my New King James or ESV or whatever Bible that I've had forever with this beautiful story. That's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. There is a good chance that that story was put in later and possibly wasn't written by John and maybe was written by somebody else and, and grafted in later. And that just like, I mean, I spent like hours and hours like pouring over that idea. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh my gosh, like... I've preached this text before. Like I've done sermons that like people did altar calls and walked up for based on this text. And it's like, if, like, what if this isn't true? Like, what if this story never happened? And that was so discouraging to me. And that was so hard. And, and it was like, you know what I mean? It was like, mm -hmm. you're, that, no, that's totally not supposed to happen. You're, you're not supposed to run into things in the Bible, like these treasured stories of Jesus and run into this idea that maybe it wasn't actually true. So for me, like that, the temptation for a lot of people when they run into those things, I think is to just give up and to just be like, oh my gosh, something I thought was true might not be. How can I, how can I trust it at all anymore? And I, I get that temptation. Like I've experienced that temptation many different times in my faith, but I would just encourage people like push through it, like study and seek and think of who God is and what he's done in your life and realize that he is so much bigger than these challenges and problems. Like theology is really big and it can be really scary. And when you've grown up in a bubble 
anything that challenges those outside ideas, it can just it can just threaten to topple that entire house of cards you have your entire faith built on. My encouragement to people is don't don't drift into postmodern thinking where it's just like, hey, who can actually know what's true? Like if this isn't true, mm-hmm. I don't actually know what's true. And for me, like, you know, I went into studying and researching and where I've landed on that whole story of the woman caught in adultery is I think that it was most likely a story that did happen truly based on different accounts and eyewitness accounts. And it was just something that they felt the the, the authors of, of the Bible, the ones who were compiling all of these different books, felt that this was left out and it should be included and it fit right there. So I, I think the story did actually happen, but possibly it wasn't John originally who included it. And that's okay. Like that doesn't destroy my faith, but it was really discouraging at first. And so I'm just trying to encourage mm-hmm. people to push past that initial discouragement and continue to seek because I think that our faith is worth not giving up on every time we come on to some sort of minor inconvenience. Does that make sense? Not only does it make sense, you're describing the literal story of how I came to faith. I think I think I may have shared this on the show before. I don't totally remember. Dude. Okay, I've never so, heard this. Okay, so grew up in church. Always would have called myself a Christian. I don't think there's ever really been a moment in my life where I would not have called myself a Christian. But I remember being either a sophomore or a junior in high school. I think I was a junior in high school at that point. I don't totally remember. But there was a an adult class about apologetics. And mm. a friend of mine who either was a senior or had just graduated, I forget which, he wanted to go to it. I thought it'd be interesting. I decided I'll go to it with you. And it was like a five-week class. We show up. And night one, the teacher of that class basically wanted to show why it was so important to know why you believe what you believe in. Mm. And he was talking about there are other religions that'll try and say that there's a different way of viewing the world. And there are all of these different philosophical viewpoints that people take to the world. And there's all these different worldviews. And he's kind of listing all these things. And I was kind of ready for all of them. And then the one thing he listed was that the Bible had scribal errors. Mm. And in part, he's talking about situations like in John chapter 8 of it's possible, if not likely, that it was not intended to be included in the first manuscript and it became a note on the side and then it worked its way into the text over time. Mm. And it lets you use the sentence that the Bible may not have been 100% perfectly passed down to us. And once he said that, I did not hear anything for the rest of the night. Mm. I lost it. Mentally, I was just like, what do you mean this isn't real? Mm. What do you mean this isn't the truth? I had never considered that before, and I was not prepared to consider it. And I just Mm. went into a crazy tailspin. I kept going to that class because I was like, I need something to ground me. I didn't really sleep for five weeks as we went through the rest of that class. And I, that is not me. Like I'm fortunately one of the things I am skilled at in life is sleeping. So it's like, I really just mentally did not know what was going on. It was the first moment where I thought, I don't even know if this is true anymore. I don't know if I can figure out if this is true anymore. Like really got to that kind of postmodern spot of not only could this not be true, but there may be a scenario where I can't figure out what's true and what's not true. Mm. But what I did was I kept going to that class and my friend, Kevin Feliciano, good job, buddy. 
he kept bringing me to that class and we would hang out afterwards for like an hour or two. And I kept asking questions from this place of, now what if somebody would ask you this? And what I was really doing was I was asking all of the things that I was thinking about right then. Like it opened the floodgates to just this ocean of doubt and questions. And I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by people, both my friend and the teacher of that class, that I ended up not only finishing that first apologetics class, but there was a second one, very creatively named Apologetics 2, that was like an extra five weeks. So I ended up doing basically 10 weeks of apologetics classes with two different teachers, and I got to ask a ton of questions. I got to give voice to a lot of doubt. I got to work through a whole lot of different things, and the biggest thing that I think kept me in the faith was each one of those people said, it's good that you ask these questions. It's Mm. helpful that you work through this stuff. Mm. It is going to lead to a far more confident faith. And and definitely towards the end of that first five-week class, it became pretty clear to me that the teacher that I was asking all these questions to realized I wasn't asking for a friend anymore. Like they realized that I was very (laughs) much on the edge and that I wasn't sure what I believed. And Mm. I was never met with hostility. I was never met with, why would you even think that? I was often met with, that's a really good question and that's worth asking. And just that comfort alone made me think, okay, we can work through this together. So there was this really shaky moment where I totally understand being in that position of maybe I really can't keep with this anymore. Mm. Maybe this actually doesn't make sense to me. I totally get what that feeling is like. But to quote a band that I used to listen to back in that time period, oftentimes to walk in faith, you first need to walk through a lot of doubt. And as someone who has done that, it is so worthwhile to walk through that doubt. Yeah, man, that's beautiful. And I feel like that gives a lot of insight into why you're doing this show specifically and mm-hmm. why we're both doing it. We, we, we've been through this. We, we have a heart for people who are currently going through this. And I've talked a lot about on the show how I think of myself as sort of doubting Thomas who got to see the holes in the hands. There's things that Jesus has shown me that I can't explain away, you know, without mm-hmm. him being involved. And I just think I I feel so much for people who haven't experienced those things and maybe never will. And and, and really like what they have to go off of is truth claims and apologetics. Mm -hmm. And and those things can easily be attacked by people who would want you to doubt and people who are anti, you know, anti-Christian faith. But also just the things that we experience in life can cause us to doubt. Learning new things about theology, <laughs> learning new mm-hmm. things about the Bible itself can cause us to doubt. I, I love what, what you said there about doubt at the end, and I, I love this quote by Evan Wickham. He says, doubt is to faith as hunger is to food. An unhealthy relationship with doubt can be deadly. On the one mm-hmm. hand, fear of doubt can lead us to binge eating on fact claims and ultimately lead to narrow-minded fundamentalism. But on the other hand, love of doubt can lead to a kind of spiritual anorexia in which doubt and deconstruction themselves become codependent addictions. Mm. Yeah, that's really good.
I think that this would be what I would encourage everybody listening to this to lean into to help yourself combat the temptation to slip into postmodernism. If you are somebody who has grown up in the faith and you start to experience some doubt and deconstruction, like Brian just said, those aren't bad things necessarily in themselves. But think about, think about the people in Brian's life, in his story. Think about their posture. Their heart was on the one hand, Brian, you can ask as many questions as you want. We will not shame you. We will not demean you. We are open to your questions. But then the other side of that coin is what, what was their goal? These are people who know God, love God, and want other people to find God. And so that, that's the right coin to me openness, willingness to learn, willingness to question, willingness to like, not just doubt, but wrestle through and work with doubt. But here's the danger. There are a whole nother group of people out there who are doing the same thing. Like, oh yes, be open, be open to questions, be open to doubt, be open to deconstruction. But their end goal is it's, it's the destruction of faith. It's wanting Mm -hmm. to see people's faith completely destroyed. And if those are your mentors, if, if those are the people whose books that you're reading and podcasts that you're listening to, where their end goal is to see that your faith completely destroyed, they're not going to be pushing you towards truth. They're going to be pushing you towards the idea that, that truth cannot be known. And, and, and that is going to be what they're going to be pursuing is not the pursuit of truth, but the pursuit of this addiction to doubt, where all you have left is doubt at the end. Absolutely. And, and the other thing I would say is even if the person's goal is I want you to discover truth, if when doubt is presented, it's shaming the person, it's only yeah. reminding them that they're wrong, then right. whether it's your goal or not, you will destroy faith. You will destroy the seed version or the small plant of someone's faith that God wants to grow in water. You yes. do have that ability to completely snuff that out. And that is why I think it is so important that as we think about how do we show people these dangers, it has to come from a place of love. It Mm. has to be focused on not just how do I tell them the truth? How do I make sure I say the most true thing? It's how do I show them the truth in a way that they're going to be ready to hear? Yeah, absolutely. That was something that I noticed just throughout all of the craziness that we've experienced on social media with everything lately when it comes to racial tensions in America or politics or COVID, what I've noticed is let's just take the example of racism, for example. We've had a lot of people on social media saying, hey, racism is a problem. Like I'm, I'm crying out about the injustice going on in our world. And for many Christians, the response has not been oh my gosh, look at the injustice. Let me see how we can help. It's been, I don't like the way that you're crying out about that. Or I don't think you have your details all completely right. And in, I, I think the analogy that comes to mind is like the first goal of a firefighter is to save people from the fire, not to debate about who or what caused it. And I think that's what we're doing though. We've got these fires in our world and instead of trying to help the people who are actually in the flames, we're just sitting around debating about who started the fire or or are the flames actually as hot as everyone really says they are. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It's learning to get out of, I want to win the argument 
and focusing instead on I want to win the person. Yeah. I want to build the connection. You know, I, what's the I, end I, goal? Yeah, I may have to put up with some things I don't like along the way. Like I may have to really work to find what is our common ground. Because if it's just, I know you're wrong. I believe you're wrong. I'm going to tell you you're wrong. I know for me, like, I'm not going to listen to that person. If all they're thinking is, I know you're wrong. I'm going to tell you you're wrong. And at the end, the only thing left for you to do will be to admit that you were wrong. It's like, well, that doesn't help me. That doesn't move me towards anything in particular. Okay, tell me if this makes sense. I feel like we've talked a lot about the dangers of postmodernism. I think maybe really quick in this last section, we should talk about the dangers of reacting to postmodernism. Because I feel like what can happen is you have postmodernism that is basically like, who can know what's true? Who can actually say we should all just do what's right in our own eyes based on whatever the societal standards of truth and righteousness and these things are? The, the bad reaction that we can have is we can go, oh, man, these people who don't have truth figured out, we have truth figured out. We need to shove truth down everybody's throats. Mm -hmm. Anytime we see anybody who's on the fence or not totally sure or they haven't landed on a position on any given debate or topic, we just need to be super hostile and in their face and listen, man, there is truth and here's what it is. And if you don't agree, then you're a bad person. You you know what I'm trying to say? Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah, Thinking about things in pendulums, things often swing from one extreme to another extreme. Postmodernism is an extreme. The denial of absolute truth is a very extreme position. But to swing all the way to the other side and say nothing matters except truth is actually to deny Jesus. Hmm. Because Jesus said, as my followers, I want you to go and speak the truth, but I want you to do it in love. Right. He didn't just say, I want you to speak the truth. And as long as what you say is true, good job, guys. Totally (laughs) down for that. If you find liars out there, people saying untrue things, go and like totally cut their legs out from under them. Like that's not at all what Jesus said. It's truth matters incredibly. Jesus said, I am the truth, but he is also the way and the life. He's also talked about as being love itself. You know, Jesus is all of these things, and we need to prioritize them in the right proportion to one another. Right, because, so the Bible says the wages of sin are death. That means it is true that everyone deserves hell. But is the strategy Jesus gives his disciples, is the model that he gives them to just go and just stand on the street corner and every person that passes you say, hey, you deserve hell and then just leave it at that. You know what I mean? Like, is it true? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's totally true. Like I deserve hell. Brian Higgins deserves hell. I'm going on record. (laughs) You know, we (laughs) all deserve hell, but is that the truth that is supposed to take the front and center stage? Or are there other truths about Jesus that actually need to wrap around that other idea and, and put it into context. And then it's this complete package that you're giving people. You can say something that's true. Like there's a lot of value I'm seeing right now on social media, especially of people just saying, Hey, I'm just saying the facts. I'm just saying what's true. Or a lot of pastors out there aren't willing to say what's true. And my thing is we should absolutely say things that are true, but we have to think about the end goal of the truthful things that we're saying. And we have to think about the way that we're saying them. 
always stand on truth, but figure out how you're supposed to stand. What's the posture you're supposed to take as you stand? Yeah, when I think about the way that Jesus taught us to love people, it's unloving to not warn someone about something that can hurt them. Mm. But if they've then hurt themselves on something that you warned them about, it's also not loving just to keep pointing out the thing they did wrong. Now you've got to care for that wound. Now you've got to treat what's ailing them in that moment. All of these things are how we love people. And so all of these things need to be part of how we show these dangers to the world around us. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.